And good evening, Gary. And good morning, Jonathan. Did we get that backwards? <laughs> yes, we did. You did that. <laughs> well, come on. It's our birthday, Gary. I'm allowed to be silly today. This Surely. is this is 100 and well, actually, are we are we on the second anniversary and the 100th podcast at the same time? It, we are indeed, Gary. Uh, the first episode of the Cood Street podcast went out on the 8th of May. So I don't have the exact date it was recorded, but it would have only been a day or two before that, uh, mm. which means about today or thereabouts. And it is the 100th official episode of the Crude Street Podcast, though we have done more than 100 episodes, if you count special ones and this sort of thing, that aren't numbered in the series. But this is it. Uh -huh. Congratulations on reaching 100. Congratulations to you. Happy anniversary, Barry. Gary. Barry. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> Well, there should be okay. champagne or something. Uh, well, I've got I've got a little bit of wine left here. Maybe not enough, maybe not enough to get through an anniversary podcast. I'm actually I've been celebrating because uh, I am at the very end of my semester. My university's commencement ceremony was this morning, except for one or two stragglers. I've turned all my grades in. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I mentioned this to you uh, a few podcasts ago, and it's a very dangerous thing to get into. Where, as far as I know, at this moment, I'm caught up. Yeah. Wow. Uh, think I have any deadlines I don't think I may have to write an, another column for Locus yeah uh, which uh, is, is is really kind of a joy when I get good books to read mm -hmm. but I don't think that there's anything I'm overdue on uh, I don't have to grade papers and for at least a couple of weeks I've got a vacation coming see I'm in the exact opposite position I am overdue on everything and mm -hmm. in fact honestly I don't even have time to record this podcast if I'm actually doing everything that I should be doing you know, I have um, financial commitments, I have book commitments, I have family commitments, I have day job work commitments. Uh, I can, you know, I even feel guilty when I sit down with a book and I'm behind on the reading I should be doing for um, the one or two projects. So I, I kind of feel pressured, particularly since I'm going to be going off to Melbourne in four or five weeks uh, for the National Science Fiction Convention here. And, and I will then be out of the, the loop for a week or two because of that. Uh, although it will be enormous fun. And, and congratulations on the Detmar nominations. To you too and to everybody else. But yay us, mm -hmm. our award nominated. But let's be honest, Gary, now's the time to be bitter and, you know, because, you know, we might as well be. Always the bride's, bridesmaid, Gary. With, well, with, with the award nominated podcast, it never quite makes it. That's, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> it is. I'm very pleased that we that we made the ballot for the Ditmars, and uh, also you know enormously pleased, obviously, for the Hugos last year for the the BSFAs. That was a complete shock and surprise and delight. So, you know, that was it. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, and since we're touching on awards, I guess this is the, the first chance we've had a ch you know the opportunity to address the issue of the annual Locus Awards, which were announced. Uh, just after we recorded the last, no, the, the previous episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. and, and I congratulations to you on that again because you've got. Well, you, you and I are in the same position here. <laughs> uh, there are five anthologies nominated, and two of them are yours. They are, which is very flattering, and very um, rewarding. I think you know, mm -hmm. it's nice to have that sort of confirmation from a readership. That I respect. I mean, I I am delighted and surprised at any compliments that the books I edit receive, and for them to show up on awards ballots is always uh, a great pleasure. 
Um, and the Locust Pile, I mean, the Locust Pile is probably a little bit different from most other awards in the, in the sense that it doesn't actually put out a, a true ballot. It puts mm. out a finalist shortlist, um, and which, which means that somewhere deep in the, the bunker in the hills of Oakland, uh, they have the results of these awards already because they're known <laughs> immediately. Uh, and I have to say, I kind of know the results, but I can't say. But uh, I'm very, I was, I'm delighted with them. I think it's overall, it's a good ballot. I've seen one or two people suggest it's a slightly old-fashioned-looking ballot. There are certainly things I'm surprised to see make it, though nothing that I'm, you know, horrified at. Uh, and as some, as people have pointed out, it was plainly Cat Valenti's year. It certainly is. Uh, that's an impressive showing. Was it four nominations? Uh, five, I think. Five? Um, yes. And I, I have to say, as I look down, I mean, there's always that moment when you see anybody sweep the nominations, as it were, rather than the actual results. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet. Um, and I look at it and I think, is this a situation where somehow someone has unduly influenced the awards? Because I've seen it, it asked. I mean, the Locust Awards have a very open nomination process. You know, you, anybody in the field, well, sorry, anybody right. on the internet can go to a web page and as long as they put their name on the uh, the ballot, they can nominate, yeah? Uh, mm-hmm. And I look down sort of at, at her nominations going, well, which one could I knock off as being unworthy? Yeah. And you're under... Mm-hmm. No, I, it happens I've now read Deathless by Cat Valenti, and it's a very, very good book. So I don't think I could knock it off from on a fantasy novel. Silently and Very Fast, by uh, which is up for novella, is actually also a very, very, very good story, and easily oh. one of the best. So you've read it yourself. It's up yes, in many cat. It's up. It's on in Gardner's Year's Best, I think, and wherever else. So I'm very comfortable with that one. Uh, White Lines in the Green Field, which is in my year's best, I think, tells you what I think of the story. I think exactly. it's one of the top five or six novelettes of the year, certainly. Um, the Bread We Eat in Dreams is a very good short story. So I think that's quite worthy. Um, and I think she's up in the non-fiction... Where is it? I thought she was up somewhere else. That may be all of them. But if that's all of them, I mean, I, I can't quibble. So, you know, it's one of those things where I think she managed to, to sweep the nominations by the thoroughly malicious practice of writing really well and having it happen to come out at the same time. I think that's exactly the case because uh, there's – I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled that somebody would describe it as an old-fashioned ballad since uh, Cat Valente is clearly not an old-fashioned writer. And to some extent, each one of these stories of hers that I've read, and I've not read all of them, seems to represent a slightly new direction for her. I mean, silently and very fast, seems to be solving her problem of, 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 of writing a, a good science fiction story which makes use of her – knowledge of folklore and storytelling techniques sure. and that sort of thing. Um, well, so, yeah, she's not, she's not somebody who's, who's found a groove and is staying in it. No. Uh, she's actually a very interesting writer in a lot of ways. Yes. I, I guess um, I didn't see the reasons for that characterization uh, enumerated, but I, I'm going to suggest to you that it's because of the two main novel ballots, the science fiction and fantasy novel ballot, and they are dominated by... Yeah, a very well. There's a traditional space opera novel on it. There's Stephen King, Charlie Strauss, Werner Vinge, George Martin, Terry Pratchett. These guys, and it's men we're talking about mostly uh, from the perspective right. of the, you know the comments, uh, are familiar. You know, they've been well established in the field. They're widely known. All those kinds of things. So when they appear on a ballot, it does seem like it's the same old people, I guess, and that may be why it's characterized that way. 
and the one or two sort of variants up there where you get, you know, uh, a Cat Valenti or a Joe Walton who you know, mm-hmm. may not normally make these ballots doesn't, for some people, offset that enough. And I guess I can only say what it, I mean, I'm not going to defend it because I don't think the ballot needs defending. But I would say it's just who nominates, you know. This is what they nominated. That's it. Straight tally. Well, no, no, yeah, I mean, it's just one of the issues we, we knew our friend uh, Charles, who, who was torn about this, because, as I understand, many years ago, the Locust ballot was only Locust readers. Um, and now it could be anybody, but it's not completely democratic in that sense. And World Fantasy, for example, has popular vote. Yes. And whenever you have a popular vote, it seems to me, in our field, uh, there are going to be people like Stephen King and George R. R. Martin that inevitably will make it on a ballot, or Neil Gaiman. Uh, because you have some people whose fan base, whose reader base, I should say, not even fan base, whose reader base is so much larger than almost everybody else's combined that the sheer demographics will make that inevitable. It doesn't mean that voters are necessarily uh, voting um, for the lowest common denominator or for the most old-fashioned book on the text. They're voting for the ones they've read. Exactly. And I certainly won't be party to criticizing readers for voting for work they like. Absolutely. Uh, Which goes back to a a point I was making. Well, you've seen it already, but it's a point I'll be making in my June column, which is what if, first of all, what if we had a completely popular vote? Mm -hmm. Um, Like uh, the People's Choice Awards of Science Fiction. I think we would probably see... uh, Stephen King and China Mieville and George R. R. Martin on that, and mm. Terry Pratt. But beyond that, I mean, eventually the ballot would begin to look entirely that way. Yeah. And I don't know if we want that. And I don't want to, I, I know, my other argument is this, I don't think we want a consensus as to what the best novel of the year is, or the best science fiction novel of the year. Uh, because that implies one readership reading one set of books. Sure. Um, and I don't think that that is a fair characterization of the readership. There are when you mention something like, uh, I don't know, uh, Charlie Strauss being, uh, being on this, uh, I don't know if um, the people who are enthusiastic about uh, Werner Vinci or Charlie Strauss are the same people who are enthusiastic about Stephen King's time travel story. I would suggest, suggest probably not, you know, honestly. And, and you're right. I mean, you, also, I mean, generally when there's a consensus as to the best books of the year, yeah, I mean, and particularly down to like a single book as opposed to a, a group of books. And mm. I think you can see that the books that are appearing on the Locust ballot generally have a, are appearing elsewhere where it's appropriate. You know, like science fiction fantasy books showing up for the Hugo. Be, I mean, some of these fantasy novels will show up for the world fantasy, I would imagine, um, yeah. and so on and so forth, and the Nebula and da-da-da. So there's, there's, a, there's a group of books. But, you know, if you look back to a year like the year The Wind-Up Girl came out, where it totally dominated everything, it takes right, some of the, it takes something some interest out of it all. I think, uh, a little bit. You know that if it's just one answer to the same question all the time, uh, it can be exciting, but it can also suggest that the field's less varied than it is. And That's yes, true. there. Are, I mean, it's a great thing that there are, that there are books that people feel aren't on this ballot that should be, mm-hmm. because that underscores that the year is more interesting. I mean, you and I. Okay, first of all, if you and I put together a list of the top five, say, science fiction novels of the year we would come up with somewhat different lists because we're Probably. different readers. I would hope so. And I mean, one of the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the same thing when I was looking uh, at, at, well, three out of four years best anthologies now. And it's interesting if you start, because I used to do this just out of fun. I'd look at, you know, your contents and Gardner's mm-hmm. and Rich Horton's sure. and 
and Hartwell and Kramers, and then I'd look at the nebula balance, and I'd look at the locus balance, and there was some overlap, but nothing approaching unanimity. No. No, uh, not at and, all. I mean, and I'm sure that as an anthologist, when you see the Hugo ballot come out, or the nebula ballot come out, or the locus pole ballot come out, and if it doesn't include exactly what you had in, in, in your year's best, I assume that doesn't make you feel like you failed, because you're not trying to guess the ballots. Oh, no, no. I mean, look, there was one year, right, I think, and I put it down in retrospect to probably blind chance. When I did the first year's best I did in the state Science Fiction Best of 2003, with our mutual uh -huh. friend Karen Haber, that particular little paperback seemed to predict every every award ballot in the field by some chance. I think everything that was nominated kind of thing that could fit into the book was. But that's blind chance. You know, it mm. really is. Uh, sometimes it happens that I also really love something that's very popular, you know, uh, and sometimes that's not the way it plays out. I, 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 I would like to think there would be some overlap between what gets on awards ballots and what's in my book, but it's only one of those after-the-fact the kind of, oh, did the rest of the world kind of agree? It's like, I, I don't want there to be a lot of overlap between my year's best and Gardner's and Rich's and everybody, David's and everybody else's, right? But I like to think there'd be some overlap just to reflect that we're all sort of talking the, you know, talking the same language, at least. And well, that does happen, you know. Right. When you um, uh, taught up the all, all these things as I did, every once in a while, and even this year, a story or two will really uh, pop up as being, uh, you know, astonishingly popular among everybody. And this mm -hmm. year, oh, for example, um, the Kids Johnson story. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, and that, that seemed to be very widely uh, consensus uh, story of, of something uh, you know that everybody liked the um, for 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 a young writer for a new writer Lily Hughes cartographer wasps uh, and the anarchist bees seemed to appeal to a lot of people Carolyn Ives Gilman had a story this year that uh, that cut across a lot of years best in nominations mm -hmm. uh, so and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because you know if a story is really really outstanding and well done and original it deserves that kind of recognition. Uh, but the counter to that is that stories can be outstanding and original and interesting in completely way, in ways that are completely different from one another. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that those things um, necessarily are going to show up on ballots or necessarily going to show up in, uh, in in anthologies. True. Uh, and the other thing, the other thing that you know, I think anybody who reads a lot of anthologies wants to do is when I'm reading your anthology, I want to know what you thought was good that year. Yes. And I know it's going to be different from Gardner and and and, and Cap. The thing is, when you're looking at awards ballots, you're looking at the the votership of of that set of awards, and it's telling you a lot about the fiction, but it's not telling you what you have to read. True. I will tell you the thing I realized while you're saying this is there's, there's something that's changed in my reading that I hadn't really given any thought to uh, until this probably this very moment, and that there's there's a kind of book that I don't read anymore at all that I yeah. used to read, study, and think about a great deal. I don't read best of the years anymore. Well, now you might I'm, say, and you, yeah, <laughs> you might say, so what, right? Yeah. Uh, because obviously I've read all of the stories or most of the stories that are going to be in those years bests, but you never read or you lose track of the context of them and what the other editor is framing. I mean, for many years, I read the Datlow Windling years bests, the Desoir years bests, the right. uh, Hartwell years bests with great with great pleasure. And before that, I, I certainly read the uh, Walheims and the Carr years bests with great pleasure. That was, that was during the time they were coming mm -hmm. out in bookstores. I could buy them. 
and you would get a very clear idea of what those people thought by reading them. And I, it's almost, I, I have this feeling now that what, what I've lost is the ability to go back to Hartwell's book, say, read it, actually read it from cover to cover and get that feel for the, the pattern of what they, they're enjoying and finding to be the best of the year rather than simply ticking it off a checklist of what I recall reading. I can see that exactly. From your point of view, you'd be looking at the tables of contents and saying, oh, yeah, that, that's okay. I wouldn't have done that because you already know the fiction. But that, that goes back to a point I've made again and again and again here, that an anthology is, is not a bunch of stories poured into a basket. It's, it, it's a selection that's been made with a certain shape and a certain argument. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned that Terry Carr, and, uh, and when Walheim was doing his own separate from Terry Carr, they were completely, radically different mm. views of the field. Yes. Uh, and, and, and that was, that was year's best anthologies that had like, what, 12 or 13 stories in them, not mm. 20 or 30 or 40. Well, usually these days you, know, you expect to find, well, my book will get to have about 25 or 30, Gardner's of 30 or 35. So around there, I think David's sense of about 25 or 30 stories. So, yeah, something like that. It did occur to me there is one thing, and I don't know if this is something we should talk about. Uh, there is one point that's potentially controversial about the Locus Awards because I've been trying to think how do you criticize them because obviously it had its own controversy some years ago when, when the yeah. voting uh, was changed. There's one thing I'm still not sure about and I guess I'll only touch on it briefly and that is the ballot that's prepared online is pre-filled. And I wonder whether that is the best idea in the world. Oh, you mean the the fact that the locust recommended reading list provides the basis for yeah, the long book? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it is, and I and you and I both know the discussions that go back and forth mm. uh, about uh, which extensive, uh, sometimes heated discussions, where there are passionate advocates for uh, individual stories, and yet there's still there's still always the possibility that everybody reading for the recommended reading reading list missed something really important. Mm. Yes. But that's absolutely true. Hold on. That's... <laughs> okay. Is... Okay. I cannot turn. This is actually a landline phone. I don't know how many people under the age of 50 even own these anymore. But you can't turn it off like you can your telephone. <laughs> if you can, I don't know how. This is... I bought this before they invented on-off switches. Fair enough. I can always try and cut this little bit out, or maybe I'll leave it in as a, a token to our I, lack I of professionalism. It's it's a it's a it's a nostalgic memory of what our early podcasts sounded like. This is so as as a special feature on our 100th podcast, we're going to let you listen to all the interruptions and and awkwardnesses and dropouts that we had. Yeah, yeah, because we've absolutely totally cut them out in the past, right? Yeah, we, we we've improved enormously like that. Um, I mean, there are things I think that uh, possibly uh, that have advantages to that. And I, I I think that. In areas, uh, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit selfishly here. In areas like nonfiction, the people who determine the locus recommended reading list call attention to books which yes. otherwise might not have made it on the ballot. Now, I, I mention that simply because I've got a book that was published by a tiny British publisher, same person who publishes John Clute's books. And if somebody doesn't see that book and recommend it to other people, it's going to disappear. Very much. And that's why I think the idea of having a lot of people who read a lot of stuff. Uh, contribute to the list is, um, is is a good idea. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. The more people um, voting, talking, all that sort of thing is, is, has got to be better. I mean, particularly in this era where um, where there's so much stuff. And we've I've 
talked about it and gone on about on about it. But I, I guess now that I think about it, there's one one group of people I want to thank, and this is going to seem mm-hmm. odd. All the people who disagree with me, I want to thank them all. Hey, there you go. Uh, there are okay. There are people who I encounter particularly. I find in because of the way I'm interacting, and it may be different for others. Um, mm-hmm. On Twitter or everywhere else, and I'm thinking particularly about a whole bunch of British crit- critics and commentators, uh, people like Jonathan McElmont, Martin McGrath, um, mm. Neil Harrison, a um, whole bunch of people. And I don't always agree with them at all, but what they do is they argue passionately, intelligently from a different point of view. And they make me consider and reconsider books that I might not have looked at. They make me look back at books that I've liked in the past and at least reconsider the question of whether they're as good as I thought they were or stories you know I know people I mean some of the uh, that particular group have been quite critical of some of the award nominated stories for the year and uh-huh. it's in, when it's okay if you have and these people don't do this and I'm also Adam Roberts is another great example th- this group of critics don't ju- don't slag stuff off they don't just mindlessly go that's rubbish and run away right they intelligently and clearly talk about why they think something is or isn't good and when you do that, it gives you something to bounce your opinion off in a really useful and healthy kind of a way. Um, and I know sometimes I look and I kind of think, oh, here we go. We're t- going to talk about what, what, how, for example, say, you know, the Locust Award ballot might be old-fashioned or the Hugo ballot for short stories isn't very good or whatever it could be. And how could people possibly have overlooked these eight books and nine stories that I like the best? Mm-hmm. But because there are re- there's reasoning behind it, because there's a passion about the field, um, and because I honestly think there, there, there's that sh- desire to make things better, in amongst the sort of the, sort of the world weariness that tends to be a part of it, um, it it's a really val- valuable thing to have your opinion bounce off. Sometimes I change my opinion and I reassess stuff, or I go and I look at things that I might have mm-hmm. not looked at, and I think that's always a great thing to have happen in in the field. And it does come come along with promoting stuff you just maybe maybe would not have seen or wouldn't have been in the context in your frame at some point. So that that's a great thing to have happen in the field. I think it's worthwhile uh, in the other way too. I mean, because I've had uh, a lot of our British friends get very enthusiastic about books, which I would then uh, read. A good example, uh, because it was such a bizarrely controversial book at the time, was uh, the Francis Spufford novel mm-hmm. Red Plenty which just generated enormous enthusiasm among people who I respect a great deal when it came out in the UK yep. uh, last year. It only came out in the States, I think, about a month ago. Yep. Uh, it, was, it, of course, gained some uh, strange sort of infamy by being nominated as, as a nonfiction book in the, for the BSFA Awards, Yes. Which, which is not. It's clearly a novel. But the, the questions that were, that were raised to me about it, which is really a novel about the it's essentially a historical novel, which mm-hmm. is maybe slightly an alternate historical novel about the Soviet Union in the late 50s. Um, and it's absolutely fascinating, but is it science fiction? Uh, and I ended up thinking, well, it's not something that's at least in terms of you know, the people who are reading my column in Locus it's, are, are necessarily going to see it that way. I can see the argument, and I can see writing a really interesting essay talking about whether something like this belongs you know, in our field at all. It's yeah. being reviewed in the United States completely as a mainstream historical novel. Yeah. Uh, there seems to be no ambiguity about it at all. But I throw, people throwing ideas like that at you, uh, are, uh, which you might end up rejecting, are no different from what you're saying of people rejecting ideas or selections that you may have made. Yes, yes, exactly. So, it, 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 Yeah, it's all part of the 
happy dialogue of our field. And it generally is a good-natured dialogue. I mean, every once in a while you get into these, uh, you know, wars over things that strike me as being uh, incredibly trivial. But uh, and, and sometimes sometimes you get into vast disagreements over a completely artificial question. Here's an artificial question. I mentioned this to you before we started recording. Yeah. But this is what I mean by an artificial question that can generate passions. Who is the current dean of science fiction? <laughs> before I answer it, I'm going to give you a little bit of a – some of our listeners a little bit of a background. Obviously, historically, okay. for a good portion of my time in the field, that was a byline that was attached to Robert Heinlein's novels. He was described as the dean of science fiction. And whenever I think about that, having – when I, after I became more immersed in the field, I would think of this image of Heinlein in his white tuxedo or whatever it was, coming down, being lowered down from above the stage uh, at the Kansas Worldcon or something, wherever that happened. And, and then these stories about where he would tell writers that they should dress better when they attended the Hugo Awards or something, and then everybody would because Heinlein really said you had to. Yeah, right. Now, Wikipedia says a dean is there's what either the most senior ambassador in a country's dip diplomatic corps, the most senior member of a country's legislature, uh, or someone in a position of authority in a religious hierarchy. I, I guess very casually then a dean of science fiction would be the most senior member of our field today. And you, I wouldn't you, want to argue with Wikipedia for a minute. <laughs> no, no. Wise move, young Gary. Yeah. But so, so you ask yourself, okay, who is the most senior member? And by that I mean you'd have to say the person that people are most likely to follow, pay attention to, because the oldest most senior member of the field would probably be a toss-up between, what, Fred Pohl and Ursula Le Guin? I think Ursula Le Guin Fred might be the dean of science fiction. I think Ursula Le Guin might oh, be no, the Fred, dean of Fred, uh, Ursula's 80. Well, I, th I think uh, Ursula Le Guin probably would be a good... Uh, a, a good candidate for that. This is a term. My point. My point is, this is a term that means nothing. As you just saw, the Wikipedia yeah. could be, you know, it could be Dean Swift of the. It could be a churchman. I think most Americans think of Dean in terms of a of a college administrator sure. Sure. who pri primarily prevents things from being done, which is not. But the thing that struck <laughs> me is interesting because going back a few years before Heinlein completely had that title sewn up, you know who the dean of science fiction was, at least in all the book covers. Who? Murray Leinster. <laughs> by right. the late 40s, and by the time he was selling stories to the Saturday Evening Post and Colliers uh, and, and, um, and, and publishing uh, you know, some early hardbacks, he was always referred to as the dean of science fiction. Yeah. Uh, and nobody, I don't think anybody ever claimed that he was the best writer of science fiction. No. But he'd been at it longest at that point. He'd been publishing since 1923 or something. And he was in some ways... The quintessential competent science fiction writer. Well, well is it Michael Cassett or something? Uh, so in <laughs> oh, actually, well. no, actually, I've got one for you. I know who the dean of science fiction elect is. The next dean of science fiction, I know who it is. Oh. Uh, do you want to sit there and guess, or do you want me just to tell you? Well, you're talking about somebody who's not currently possibly in that position, or somebody who... John Scalzi. Okay, I was going to say before John Scalzi and maybe in between Le Guin and Scalzi, I would put Joe Haldeman. Okay, yeah. And, and we can talk about Joe in a minute because, of course, we've just finished a project, so it's, it's a good mm -hmm. time. So, um, But yes, now I, I guess the real point of raising the Dean of Science Fiction, whilst all these people who have turned on expecting a hundred-episode extravaganza slowly and disappointedly flick the off switch and wait for the next podcast. Right. 
was to point out that it's an absurd point and that this sort of uh, commonality of view doesn't exist anymore? That's exactly what I'm saying. It's a, uh, th these are things that are essentially blurbs. I mean, essentially terms like that, you know, the, the, well, they're blurbs which in some cases get turned into actual awards. I mean, when, when, when the nebulists decide they want to give a grandmaster award, they've decided they're going to blurb this person for the rest of that person's life. Uh, but does I'm, it really mean anything? I'm going to disagree with you, Gary. I think once upon a time it did. I think these things are legacies of a different time or uh, the palimpsests of a different time. I think mm -hmm. in 1955 the field was a clearly defined, quite confined, socially very small world. Cool. And that, you know, the best was the best and everybody read everything and, you know, probably had discussed it before you ever got around to someone putting together a best of because there wasn't that much stuff being published, particularly when you move through from 55 to 60 when uh, the, the science fiction book is really only appearing for the first time and there aren't that many of them. Certainly, uh, someone like Charles would tell you he could have readily read every science fiction Everything, book published yeah. so, and could go to a convention and talk to other people who had read every science fiction book and have an informed uh, conversation. Now, I briefly at one point talked to Pat Cadigan, who was at the 1976, I think, Kansas City World Connor. It might have been 74. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have been left with no doubt that Robert A. Heinlein, in, at that point in time, was the dean of science fiction. If he said he disapproved of things, people stopped doing them. If he wanted to change something around, it was vastly influential. I think I, that's true. Now I don't think there's but I don't think there's anybody today, first of all, who's in that position or ever is really likely to be. Um, I think what we now have is this broad, ever more diverse field. I think yes, there are still issues in acknowledging diversity and in broadening it and in changing things. I had a very disturbing conversation via Twitter very briefly with Nadia Korafor about how some things are happening in the field particularly in the YA, YA end of the field, uh, and how there may be systematic racism in the field and stuff. And that's a, an enormous concern, as is anything to do with uh, systematic sexism or systematic exclusion of anybody else, uh, and something that needs to be addressed very seriously. But I think it's also better and more diverse than it used to be. I think the idea of a center of control, of someone able to fundamentally change things, has changed. You know, uh, because we obtain our books in a more diverse manner, because there are so many more people writing, because the center in so many ways did not hold. I mean, you know, there was a center of the field in 1955 in a way that there could not be a center of the field in 2012. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Oh, no, I agree with that. I, I think not only is there nobody who actually, this is why I was mm. posing a decidedly artificial question. Ah, not ah. only was, is there nobody who really belongs in that role. I don't think there's anybody that I know who would want it. I don't think anybody today would even pretend to want to talk for the science, to, uh, you know, for the science fiction world. All of us, to some extent, do that when we're talking to the mundane world. If I'm talking to my colleagues at the university, I have to start from the beginning and say, well, okay, Jules. Run. So to some extent, all of us speak for science fiction when we speak to the outside world. When we speak to our own community, Nettie's absolutely right. Who would want to try to represent um, the variety of perspectives that are out there today. I don't think that's strictly true at all. I think there are people out there who would dearly love to be that central and that influential. Really? Yes, I do. 
I'm not going to name names because it would be undiplomatic of me, but I certainly can think of several people off the top of my head. In fact, I'll go further. Our dear okay. friend Charles Brown was one of those people. He was, and he wanted to be, and there are, I, I know exactly what you're going, but he also became, he came to recognize toward the end of his life that he was speaking for a particular viewpoint which had been formed during a particular set of decades. Sure, sure. And he knew it was not the only viewpoint. Yes. Um, yes, I just, think that's, but I, I, I think, yes, I mean, do I think there's somebody out there who would like to be the dean of science fiction? I don't know. Do I think there's somebody out there who'd like to fundamentally influence the direction of the field? Absolutely, 100%. Well, yeah, I think that may be true. Oh. Uh, do I think that their intention is to make it less diverse? No, I don't actually think that. But do I think that they would like to see it steer in a certain direction, see the conversation around it head in a particular direction? Yes, I absolutely do. And for the most part, I mean, okay, I, I, my response to that to that fact, in my opinion, is a little schizophrenic. If they could possibly succeed, I would oppose it. But because mm. they cannot possibly, in my opinion, succeed, because I think that the increase, increasing level of diversity in the field is now built, increasingly being built into it, if only because the younger generation in the field is so determined it will happen, right? What that means is then you have the opportunity for these people who are working really hard to influence the field to work hard in an environment that's working against them. And it means that you can, in some ways, get a richer, more diverse result because of that. Because you know, firm, strong, intelligently formed opinions can only you know, enrich everything around us. That, that's why. Well, I, cert I certainly agree with that, uh, and I don't. I, I don't know what part of that was going to sound schizophrenic, but it didn't sound schizophrenic <laughs> the way you described it in the end. I, uh, there, there, there's a sense that there, there's a kind of bifurcated sense of mission that I think we're all beginning to have. On the one hand, there is still the need uh, to talk about science fiction as worthwhile. And I think that is a problem that everyone faces, whatever their own community is. I mean, if, if, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to, for example, uh, when I talk to gay friends of mine who are in, in literary departments, in the English departments, and, mm -hmm. and they have to defend science fiction in that context. Uh, people who are in uh, NASA, like our friend Karen Burnham, probably have to defend science fiction. So again, when we're talking to the outside world, there is this sense of mission that we want to represent science fiction. Yes. But I don't think that um, within the field anybody would, uh, would would want to do exactly what you say. I think there, there are any number of people who have been off and on official spokespeople for science fiction. Mm -hmm. for, a few, for a few years it was James Gunn, as a matter of fact, because mm -hmm. he was getting a lot of media attention. And he ran the Institute. He was authoritative. He was a writer himself. Uh, and yet his view of science fiction was... You know, essentially formulated during the 40s and 50s. Sure. And he was aware of that. So on the one hand, there is this sense of um, no one wants to speak for the field anymore, and everyone wants to hear voices we haven't heard. I mean, you know, 10, 15 years ago when we began hearing voices from the Caribbean, it was like there's a lot of science fiction yeah. out there, a lot of people interested in science fiction. Oh. They've probably been writing it a long time, and we're now beginning to see it. And that's yeah. always a terrific feeling. Absolutely. Uh, and generational change is, is normal. I mean, I'm intimately aware of it here in Australia, possibly because it's writ, writ on a, written on a small stage, and so it's mm -hmm. clearer and easier to see. But I remember very clearly becoming aware of Australian science fiction when I first encountered the field here. Now, we're talking uh -huh. the end of 1984, beginning of 1985. And there's a very clear, precise group of established writers 
And by the time I started editing and publishing Eidolon with my, my friends in the 1990s, mm-hmm. we were to some degree sweeping them away and replacing them with a new generation. Right. Now, yes, we also we kept we were in touch with some of them and involved some of them, and in the end published a number of them. And we certainly published like George Turner and Damian Broderick, those kind of people. Yeah. And certainly, if, you know, it's, it's interesting when you work out the generation, then you realize that certainly uh, Turner started writing writing science fiction in the seventies. Broderick in the mid sixties, actually, and mm-hmm. say someone like Terry Dowling in the early the late nineteen seventies. I think he started writing uh, science fiction. So we involved some of them, but we also swept a lot away. Now. There's been two generations since I came into the field in Australia. There was a generation led by sort of Cat Sparks in the early uh-huh. 2000s. Yeah. They're largely being swept away now in place of the generation being led by uh, Tansy Roberts and 12th Planet Press, those kind of people. And there is no porosity between it at all, which is quite interesting. So, so like the generation today has no interest at all in stuff written by somebody who's written in who started writing them in the 60s or 70s. It's, it's really quite quite interesting. Really? The lack of interest that I see in it, yes. And it's something I've discussed with them. It's like, well, they had their turn, and if people like them, they'll, other people will pay attention to them, but we're not interested. Uh-huh. And, I mean, the great example, and the, the one that I try and champion, is Damien Broderick. Because despite the fact that in the U.S., there's a feeling that he's had, uh, he had a renaissance a couple of years ago where he was writing a whole bunch of important short stories and everything else. Right. Here at home, there is no interest or discussion or anything else. He's just non-existent. It's funny because one of the terms I remember to get back to our meaningless yeah. term, it was clear, at least from the point of view of, of the states, that for a number of years, George Turner was the dean of Australian science fiction. Yes. Yes, he was. I mean, I, I only met him once. He's a very quiet man. But um, yes, that, that's undeniable. Though he actually didn't write very much. No, and, but he wrote some stunningly good work. And I yes, don't know if it's yeah. being read today at all. I don't. I doubt any of it's in print whatsoever. Um, certainly, I, I have a funny feeling Bruce Gillespie is the executor of the estate, mm-hmm. and my guess is that every single piece of George's work is now out of print, including his major mainstream award uh, winner. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Miles Franklin Award, which is a major literary award here in Australia, but one of his early novels won it in the 1960s. Really? Uh, a book called The Cupboard Under the Stairs, yeah. And mm. that, that's what he was best known for in this country. Having, having been a, a Franklin Award winner. Um, but, yeah, he's gone the way of the wind now. You know, the time has, er, has erased that largely. Um, and, the, you know, the discussion now is quite different. Uh, and in some ways that's a normal and a healthy thing. Well, I think it is, but I think also that uh, I, I don't know to what extent the group you're talking about that is not interested in the previous generation. I, that, that may be something... That is a little bit unique. I mean, we, we were talking to Nettie Okorafor a couple of weeks ago. Mm. She, she read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, I remember when we, t- we were talking to Karen Lord about, she had this wonderful sort of theory about Asimov's the gods themselves. Mm. A lot of people did, I mean, maybe, maybe not in the sense of community. Maybe yeah. that's the thing. Um, maybe that they didn't see that they were ever going to be part of that community. In some sense, they weren't. Uh, but they still had the childhood and, and, and teenage reading experiences yeah, that yeah. led them to yeah. love the field. Yes. I mean, I, I should say as well, I'm not talking specifically about the people who are, I've named. In other words, like, I don't think this is necessarily at all true of, Tan, of Tansy Roberts or her friends particularly. Mm-hmm. But just as, a, as an overall generational observation, that seems to hold true here. And to a lesser extent, may well hold true there in the States. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, you have a lot. It seems to me, 
in the last few years, uh, possibly led by Cory Doctorow, you have a lot of self-awareness of the field, a lot of sure. sort of looking back, a lot of reflexiveness. Uh, there's uh, We talked about Stan Robinson's novel, which is full of allusions to earlier mm. science fiction writers. Uh, so there, there's a there's an almost a deliberate sense to re, to reconstruct the past to, to build um, what what American historians used to call a, a usable past. Yes, uh, and and I, I think that you know it's very appreciative because it's not it's not just looking back to the era of Heinlein and Asimov. I mean, when 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 we tend to think about tributes to earlier science fiction, yeah. we think about that. But but no, there are now. Look at the term Ansible. It's now a standard term. I mean, it just shows up everywhere. And yes. Of course it's a tribute to Ursula. And, and her influence stretches far and wide as it should. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, look, I, I, yes, for all that both of us are people who are probably in the business of creating consensus views or uh, a little bit uh, and are caught up in the whole gatekeeper-y kind of you know, you know, world, I don't think either of us are particularly interested in seeing it actually be achieved. I think, you know, one of the things I was thinking last night entirely, uh, it just occurs to me now, was the notion that really one of the things that's changed now is becoming a gatekeeper in our field is no longer a position you're really appointed to. You know, uh, when either of us were asked to be, you know, reviewers for Locus and I became reviews editor and everything, something mm-hmm. else that I now celebrate the tenth, my 10th anniversary of t- this week or next week, um, oh, yeah, you're having all kinds of anniversaries. You've got a wedding anniversary, and you've got a job anniversary, and you've got a locus anniversary in addition to our <laughs> podcast. Well, so no, happy the, anniversary that, that, multiple times. Well, actually, people have misunderstood that post. It's not a wedding anniversary, no. I have two locus anniversaries. It's 15 years since I started with locus, and ah. it's 10 years since I became locus reviews editor. And the reason ah. that I came out to, went out to the, the States in the first place was to be with Marianne, and we eventually got married. Right. Um, it's also, yes, the 26th anniversary of my starting work at my day job, which is a bit terrifying. I've now been spent more time doing that than not doing that in my life. I'm well mm-hmm. past that tipping point. Uh, and yes, the podcast is two years old and all these kind of things, which is really, really kind of cool. And I've now lost my point. But yes, lots well, of... you were talking about gatekeepers. We started out talking about... Yeah, yeah, uh, g- g- our... just, just that, I mean, back when I entered the field, there was that feeling that somebody would come along... And because you'd been something, do something worthwhile, you'd sort of be anointed to be a gatekeeper. And now anybody can be a gatekeeper. You just have to want it and work at it and stand up and be interesting about it. You know, to be the most interesting critic on the internet or commentator on the internet, you just have to be the most interesting person. And if you can do that, then everybody around you will follow you. Well, a gatekeeper has a dual meaning. I mean, it seems mm, yeah. to me that there was a point at which uh, it, it's, a, it's an ugly term in one it is, sense. It is. You're, you're standing there with a halberd, you know telling people, you are, you will not enter science fiction. Science fiction is not for you. Yes. Um, and I think that what most of us have been doing is, is trying to find people that we didn't know and say, come on in here, you're going to like this. Um, I hope and, so. I hope so. I mean, one, of the, one, one of the examples, and I don't think she would mind my mentioning this, was, was, was Mary Rickert, who, didn't, who clearly had grown up reading science fiction and, and, sort of, and fantasy and so forth. But she kept writing stories that she was told by her writing teachers would be really good stories if she could get rid of this fantastic stuff in them. Yeah. And she kept trying to clean it up, and then the stories wouldn't work without it because they were str- – and she, I guess eventually Gordon Van Gelder um, said to her, no, the reason you can't get rid of that is because that is the story. Yeah. Uh, and, she sa- and once she realized that there was a world and she was doing something terribly interesting and original within that world, she came in. So what? So, so the gatekeeper is – what used to be the gatekeeper is more like a recruiter these days. 
I, I would mm-hmm. hope so. I mean, just my only concern about that is, and you and I have to be careful because mm-hmm. we, we are struck with the same affliction, Gary. Well, yes. We're middle-aged white men in privileged positions, and so it can look like that, that way to us. So whilst I, I want to sit here and say, yay, we're all being more inclusive and more mm-hmm. considerate and everything else, I also have at exactly the same time this huge alarm bell going off saying, well, that's the way it looks to me, but I don't know if that's the way it looks to all of our listeners or all of the people trying to get into the field. And yes, you, I hope that consistently you and I are going, yes, come in, yes, come in. But I'm well, also I mean, aware of we may not be aware of the points where we don't. Wait, wait, I'm sure we're not aware of that. And I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff that we miss. One of the things that uh, has come up in a lot of discussions with this uh, translation award, which, which I've been involved with, is the amount of um, you know non-English language science fiction that we just never see. Yeah. But when we talk about inviting people in, I'm not simply talking about inviting in people from quarters that we hadn't seen before, because it, it's, it's a thrill to find an Israeli science fiction writer, let's say. Uh, a lobby kid art. It's a thrill to find an Indian science fiction um, uh, writer. But it's also a thrill to find somebody who feels comfortable and attracted to this field and hasn't really been in it before. I mean, two of the books I got to look at this week uh, are also books by, I suppose you could say, another privileged white male, mm. Brian Evanson. And Brian mm. Evanson runs the pro- writing program at Brown University, and he's very well respected. And one of them is published by a small press called Coffee House, a collection mm-hmm. of short stories, yeah. and the other is a novel from Tor. Yes. And here, here's a guy who's attracted to the field. He reads a lot in the field. He didn't really, I think, uh, until a few years ago, think about actually coming into the field and, and, and joining the discussion, and now he's very happy to do that. Yes. On the other hand, I don't know about Margaret Atwood. oh look I would be delighted for her to be part of the field if she wishes to be and I've got no problem with her not being if she doesn't wish to be well I think actually I think she wants to be I think that the whole discussion we had about her with Ursula uh, was sympathetic to her intentions it was simply her attitude was never the attitude of let's say uh, oh Philip Roth believing he invented the alternate history or John Updike writing what was generally absolutely yeah. really, really awful science fiction novel. Yeah. Or even worse than that, Paul Theroux. Those are people we're not inviting in. <laughs> you know, people, they have their own room. They have a nicer apartment than we do. Let them stay there. Is, is that going to be... I mean, once upon a time, you and I, as part of this podcast, said that we were going to do a series of uh, podcasts or, or parts of podcasts about books you don't need to read, right? I was wondering when we were going to get to our nostalgia section. Yeah, we did that for about a month and a half. Yeah, it got boring, whatever. Uh, Are are you now proposing that we need to do a part of one about people that that we're we're happy to leave out of the field? Well, the thing about not inviting, I mean, uh, Michael Crichton would have been on the top of my list for that. (laughs) But, you know, how much pride can you take in not inviting someone into your hovel from their mansions? (laughs) It depends how much they want to come in. I guess so, yeah. I guess, you know, I guess that's true. Which, again, always takes me back to the story that I was told uh, about two people who are well and truly inside the field, and, and you know, happily so, uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Cornell, and just mm-hmm. how much attention they paid, serious and emotional attention, and their commitment to it, uh, while sitting in vast mansions and all that kind of thing and worrying about reviews and $2 fanzines. And for some reason strikes me as being relevant in this context about, you know, those who want to be in and those who don't want to be in. I think that... Um I, I, I don't. I don't. I, I'm never going to um, c- 
criticize anyone for wanting to be successful, for wanting to be not sure for wanting to get out of the ghetto, uh, as it were. It's, I, I think it's a silly idea by and large. And it's, it's not a new idea. I mean, one of the things that's interesting in this, uh, actually, it's a uh, uh, Locus Award nominated book, Becoming Ray Bradbury, is that by 1949, when he was negotiating with Walter Bradbury for his first book of short stories, he was yep. saying, please don't put the word science fiction on it. Yes. Uh, because he, he wanted to be in the mainstream. People still want to do that. And if they think it can be successful, if you can become, you know, if you can actually break out in that sense, more power to you. Most often, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to just disappear in the mainstream sector. Yeah, yeah. I think that may be true. <sighs> what other, wait, 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 I'm thinking, you, you mentioned the books you don't need to read feature. What other features of this podcast have we picked up and dropped in the last two years? Oh, Lord, more than I could possibly think of. I mean, part of it actually is that we have been very, hmm, unclear, on, on I think, with ourselves. And it's something of a feature, I hope, about what we wanted to be doing. I mean, every now and again, particularly, I think I tend to think, oh, we need to work out a schedule. We need to come up with a new format. And a number mm -hmm. of the podcasts that I really like and enjoy have very clear formats. I think it, it makes them interesting to a lot of other people. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've wondered, because I am a competitive person, Gary. And every now and again, I think, we need to go for more listeners. You know, we have our loyal, regular listeners, and I, I love them. And I'm really mm -hmm. delighted and proud that we have them. But couldn't we get more if we just did something else? We, if, we, if we had a chocolate wheel or something, or if we gave away prizes, or if we had a jingle. If we had a jingle, Gary, we'd have more listeners. I'm sure of it. No jingles. <laughs> I'm sorry. This could be the end of the podcast, but no jingles. <laughs> you mean I can't sort of cut in at the front like 30 seconds of Led Zeppelin playing Ramble on or something? Oh, that'd be okay. <laughs> that'd be fine. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's all those sorts of things that we could consider. Yeah, really, seriously, no. Um, yeah, I, but then the reason that I don't really do that is not because the ones where you and I are working to find out what we're going to do aren't occasionally interesting. Uh, and I, I do wonder whether people actually believe all the time that we just sit down and do it. Um, but it's where it really sparks off. Either our conversation works or we have somebody in and you suddenly find yourself an hour and a half into a fascinating conversation and it just worked out. That's when it's really worth it. And it's why I'm all... Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I was... Yeah. Go ahead, finish. I was going to say, I, I, I will say that's also what always stops me in, the, in my tracks when people ask which 10-minute sample of the podcast you want to promote uh, right. or which episode. I mean, when, when the the people at the Hugo Packet, lovely people, came along and said, you know, point us at one episode of your podcast for people to listen to. And I'm going, um... And it's not just me sort of saying, oh, I don't go back and listen to the podcast. It's that I just don't know. I mean... Yeah, it's all different. And I look back on, on some of them very, very fondly. It's some of the ones that are just us. And certainly some of the, some of the times we've had uh, friends on the podcast and been able to chat with them and catch up and spend time going over you know, what's happening. That, that has been a, you know, a real joy. Uh, and so far, after 106 or 108 different podcasts over time, mm -hmm. it's yet to become a chore. You know, I, well, that's my sense. I mean, uh, I, I know we've had questions asked. We can spend two minutes answering questions that people have asked in the last year and a half, and, and we've ignored. Um, one of the questions that people were asking was why, when we had Ursula on, would you spend the whole time talking about Margaret Atwood? And that's basically because 
she she got interested in that topic. Uh, yes. That's what she agreed to talk about. Well, well, um, well, more to the point, I think it's also, I mean, okay, that's what we did, but also that's what we approached her about, in fairness. We, yeah, right. Because there was a, a situation and it lined up. I mean, in the nice way that she, obviously, Ursula knows uh, Margaret Atwood. Obviously, she'd been involved in a dialogue and it just seemed to really fit nicely together to have that conversation. Uh, and I, we've always tried to not be one of those podcasts that are promoting something or pushing something we're right. having discussions and trying to understand things and that's the angle we come to things like that well you tweeted uh oh sometime last week uh about the ideal podcast mm. uh and, and you probably remember what you said it's it's the two of us sitting out on the back the open deck at mm. locus locus headquarters which if we haven't described it is is a house with a wonderful deck that stretches out over the hill leading down into the woods in Oakland, California. Uh, and that's where you used to chat with uh, hmm. Charles, and I used to chat with Charles. I don't know. You and I probably chatted there not more than once or twice ever. We've, true, very true. We've rarely been it, there or, in fact, most places together. That's well, that's true, like, exactly. But the sense was, and I spent enough time on that back deck, and people would show up. Cecilia Holland would be there, or Stan Robinson would be there. Uh, or Karen Fowler or whoever, and whoever came in and joined the discussion would talk about what was on their minds and what was on our minds. And I think that's pretty much we, the way we've run this. It's like we're, mm -hmm. we've, we've got a, a, a table and we've got, you know, at least I have some wine. Mm -hmm. And anybody who wants to sit down and join in is welcome. Exactly. That's the way I would want to, want to put it out there in the world. That's why I'd like to see it. And, you know, hopefully, I mean, I think the podcast will change over the coming year. I mean... It is our third anniversary year, which I guess isn't any bigger than our second anniversary year, but I, 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 I'm, I'm sure we will be forging new stuff to be forged, doing something different, whilst also doing well, exactly the same thing. I mean, reading in the field, talking about it, hopefully finding some way to pry ourselves away from awards because they're easy things to talk about because they happen all the time. But well, Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things I want to do, and, and, and you know, sometimes... It's, it's not necessarily to promote a book, but sometimes you read something uh, and, and you think, we should, we should be talking to that writer. We yes. should be getting uh, – I'll give you a good example, uh, which is a, a, a preview, I guess, of – I don't have – I have no idea what I'm going to say, but it's going to preview, preview of the uh, review column I write in July. Uh, Some Kind of Fairy Tale is the new Graham Joyce novel. I have it in my and hand. It's, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just – I just read the first, the first chapter. I literally read the first chapter before I talked. Really? You, seriously. And I'm going, oh, my God. And I, in fact, I said to Marianne, I said, it's one of those ones because there's that little moment where in the opening chapter, because Graham writes really subtly really well. Yes. Uh, and I, I also, this is a book that I'd love to have him do an audio book of so I could hear him reading it because his voice would make it perfect. But, exactly. But there's a moment where uh, th this couple are sitting down, and this isn't a spoiler. It's literally the opening chapter. Um and they have their annual toast over uh, their Christmas dinner, and the the father, who from whose point of view it's, it's, it's coming from, basically says you know, like it's the moment he hates the most. That second mm -hmm. where his wife might or might not react in a particular way and doesn't, and it tells an entire story right in that point. You know, there's this whole mm -hmm. thing, something's wrong, it's gone wrong, and you've had a little bit of context because they're talking about how there they are, just the two of them, what they used to do when the children were there, and the children are planning not there. And it's just really, and I'm just dying to get on with reading it. So, so you finished it? 
I finished it. It's it, it delivers on its promises in many many different ways. It's a it's a wise book. It's um, it's a fantasy. I mean, it's it, it it's for for me so far this year. And in, in, in terms of reading a book about the way you read fantasy or the way you read understand fantasy, uh, it it has something of the same feel of among others, even though it's not about reading science fiction. It certainly uh, is is a is a smart wise book. And Graham is somebody who. Well, if we could, you and I, mm. I hope we'll see him in Toronto yeah. at World Fantasy. Actually, uh, I, sh- yeah. I, I, I should ask you, um, because this is, from a distance, the book that I expect it to be like is Mythigo Wood. Mm. And is it? Does it does it sit in that space at all? No. Good. No, not at all. I mean, it, it looks like it's going there, and it goes in an unexpected direction. That's good. That's what I would hope for and expect from, from Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, uh, it's one of the things I, I, I you'll you'll be amazed that whilst we were talking before the podcast, I did a little running list of things we could talk about. And I was going to say, mm. we could have talked about what we've been reading, but we're almost at the end of our time. Oh, but, well, I have to say one more thing about, uh, yep. about the, the Graham Joyce novel, which is something that I don't know if I've seen before, but there's a convention in fantasy, and this is not, again, this comes in at the end of the first chapter, so this is not a spoiler. But essentially, a, um, a daughter... Uh, who reappears in this family? Who's been who just disappeared twenty years earlier when she yeah. was a teenager, and she comes back apparently not aged much, and she tells the story about being someplace else. Yeah, which sounds very much like a fairyland. Uh, that's an old old convention. The idea of you go to this other place and decades pass before you return. I mean, that's the, the Narnia things worked in reverse. You know, you spend six months back in England and a thousand years have passed in Narnia. Um, but the idea of going into another what, – what he asks and what he talks about, uh, and he does this consistently in his fiction, is not necessarily the character that has experienced this, but what happened to the other people in the intervening 20 years? How did they live their lives? Mm. How did they deal with the loss and so forth and so on? So the novel centers not entirely on the fantasy element, but it's a novel that couldn't work without the fantasy element. Yes, yes. And he's very sharp about that sort of thing. So, yeah, you, you read a novel like that and you think immediately – um, I want to talk to him, and yep. uh, and and we both know him, and he's a delightful guy, and we can talk to him. And I'm thinking, okay, there's a podcast. Oh yeah, and there's a couple of that are out there to be done that we've talked about repeatedly, uh, privately, mm-hmm. not on the podcast. And so I think right. probably it may be that one thing that will change in the coming 12 months, as has happened in the last three, is you'll see us talking to more, other, you know, bringing other people in. And I've got some people I very much want to sort of talk to, even though there are a couple that honestly I'm intimidated by, Gary, as you know. I was very intimidated, intimidated about the idea of talking to Ursula Le Guin, even though mm-hmm. she's a lovely, unintimidating person. Um, I want us to talk to Caitlin Cunin about The Drowning Girl, if she will be willing. Mm-hmm. We haven't asked her, so we're just chatting here. But uh, I'm also intimidated by that idea. Uh, and yeah, there's a few others. So I don't know. It, it should be an interesting time. It's an interesting time, and it's. Uh, I think it's... It's it's fun to have people drop in and become. We almost have regulars on the podcast now. We've had Peter Straub on a couple of times, maybe three times. We've had Elizabeth Hand on a few times, so people can drop in uh, whenever they whenever they want to. But well, yes. But 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 being intimidated, I know there's a sense in which um, I don't. I guess to be honest, I don't feel that much anymore. Um, I mean, there's. The point of which I'm, I've, I've, you know, you, you meet a lot of people. Well, in the no, field no, this is because like, you do that thing to me, Gary, all the time. 
Oh yeah, well, like, just... we're going to have so and so on the podcast. I'm going, yeah, 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 fine. And he, and then he goes, of course you know someone, and then like you've been ha- having dinner and drinking with them for twenty years, and you're going, it's just so and so. I'm going like I've I've never met them, we've never encountered each other. Here we go, hi. Yeah, well, that's what the, maybe 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 that's that's the part of Charles that I have to take on because <laughs> it, it is kind of a and frankly I will I will admit it's an absolutely cool feeling after you've been in the field for decades yeah. to think I know some really neat people and they will probably come on a podcast with us and and sometimes they most of the time they'll enjoy it and and some of the people that we've the, we know we're going to have on but we don't want to say anything until we make sure we set a date for it. Uh, are people like that? People who can be very intimidating, but they're not, uh, really. There uh, should be an upside to getting old and crusty, Gary, and I guess that's it. That must be it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, which goes back to our last question. Uh, after doing this, and we talked about this a lot back at the beginning, because, uh, and we need to acknowledge the fact that these podcasts would not have begun if it hadn't been for our mutual friend Charles. Would he just be on our case right now saying, you guys have totally messed this up for two years now. What's wrong with you? Well, it would, it, would dep- it would depend. Would he have been on every one of them? Because he wouldn't say it if he'd been on every one. But if he hadn't been, right. he would have because he would have thought he should have. Right. I think that's exactly what it amounts to. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a bully pulpit. That's all it is. It's a bit of fun. And thank you for the 100 episodes so far. And I imagine for the next hundred to come, because certainly I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, and thank thank you to all of our listeners as well, um, and to all of our guests. And, and all of our guests. Yes. you know, And for all the presents that they didn't send. They didn't send one present, Gary. Not even nothing. It's, it's, it's a second. Oh, jeez, that's true. Didn't get to do anything last time either. Well, no. we have, okay. Oh, well. We have... We have two award nominations. Okay, that's like a present. We'll count those as gifts. That's a present. I mean, people say they are gifts. They are. Absolutely. So we will. So, on on that note, then, I guess this one, this 100th podcast surely must go out to Charles, who somewhere out there maybe is listening. I don't really think he thinks he is. That's why he did all that. But, you know, it sounds about right. No. And, you know, to us, it's been fun, Gary. This is going out to well all the people who knew Charles. This is let's say it's for them. I'm going to correct you even further. Nah, it's not nah. going to work either. How's this one? All the people who would who want yeah. to be part of the conversation that he used to be part of, and that we're still you know fortunate enough to be part of. This goes out to them and to us, and you know, till the next time we get to sit down and talk again. I'm lifting. I'm lifting my now empty glass of wine to the conversation. For the conversation, Gary. And until next time, I'll talk to you then. All right. We'll talk to you soon.